And so finance really is uh, one of the, the biggest and most contentious issues at, at COP26. Climate change is actually reshaping in quite interesting and fundamental ways how financial markets are operating. Whereas framing climate change uh, from a financial risk perspective means that it begins to become an agenda item for the CFO. So that really changes the tenor of the conversation that occurs within profit-making institutions. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm joining you from the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for joining us this evening for How Can Finance Address Climate Change Panel. This is a discussion that is hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute. The Sydney Environment Institute is a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research and it brings together key thinkers from the university and beyond to address critical environmental challenges. My name is Susan Park. I'm a professor of global governance here at the University of Sydney, acting deputy director and research lead of the Sydney Environment Institute's Unsettling Resources Project. This event is part of the Sydney Environment Institute's extraction series that probes the use, the impact and the future of gas, coal and lead extraction in Australia at a critical point in our changing climate. I'd like to now pass over to the chair for this evening's event, Professor Tim Stevens, who is a professor of international law here at the University of Sydney in the Law School. He teaches and researches in public international law, focusing on the international law of the sea, international environmental law and international dispute settlement. His major publications include the International Law of the Sea in 2010, revised in 2016, and the International Courts and Environmental Protection, published by Cambridge University Press in 2009. Over to you, Tim. Thank you very much, Susan. And uh, with Susan, I also acknowledge the traditional owners of, of the land that I'm zooming in from, the, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects uh, to their elders past, present uh, and emerging. Well, it's a great pleasure to be chairing this webinar, uh, this seminar this evening, uh, addressing the question, how can finance address climate change? And we've got a terrific a panel of contributors. Um, I'm no expert in climate finance. I like to think I know something about climate law, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from uh, all three panellists their perspectives on what's happening, and a lot is happening. Uh, before I get underway with some questions, I thought I might provide just a bit of an update as to what's happening in Glasgow, drawing out a few finance-related themes uh, where possible. So uh, the latest conference of the parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, COP26, and also the meeting of the parties to the Paris Agreement is underway in Glasgow, as we know. Lots of issues still to be resolved over the next few days. Um, as always with these things, it will come down to the wire uh, and we can expect the next draft of the COP26 cover decision sometime today. Now, there's been a flurry of announcements at COP26. Interestingly, most of those announcements up to this point have been um, actually separate from the technical work of the negotiators, but they're really significant. And I just want to 
kind of run through some of these. One is a, a big uh, range of new 2030 and mid-century emissions pledges. Um, more than 100 world leaders have promised to end and reverse deforestation by 2030. Australia is among them. More than 100 countries have signed on to a new, to a new pledge to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Australia is not in that group. A coalition of countries have announced a plan to achieve net zero emissions in shipping. There's been an agreement by more than 25 countries to end financing for fossil fuel projects abroad. Australia is not among that group. There's an agreement by more than 40 countries to phase out coal-fired power. Australia is also not in that group. And on finance, there's something called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, chaired by Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of, uh, of England, that has announced that there are now 130 trillion US dollars in the total combined um, assets of companies that have committed to net zero. So quite extraordinary announcements. In terms of actual COP decisions, that the kind of technical work of the COP, th these are the, the matters that remain outstanding that we need to keep an eye on over the next 48 hours or so. Um, Article 6, carbon trading and offsets, how that's going to work, how we can avoid double counting, um, issues around common timeframes, so when countries pledge their emissions commitments, should, how should they be aligned? So we, we get them every, say, five years or perhaps even every year rather than the hodgepodge that we currently have. Um, more transparency, um, so something called the Enhanced Transparency Framework, so we can actually check that countries are delivering what they promise. There's a lot of work still happening on um, adaptation. Also work happening on compensation, uh, which uh, we use in climate circles, the technical term loss and damage, but it's really about compensation. And finally, um, on finance. And so finance really is uh, one of the, the biggest and most contentious issues at, at COP26. Um, we know that Back in 2009, wealthy nations pledged to mobilise $100 billion in climate finance annually by 2020 to help vulnerable nations deal with climate change. We are not there yet. We're still some way off it. But promisingly, um, it may well be that in the next few years, we will get that annual $100 billion. Just before I then hand over to, um, to, to our speakers and start posing some questions, can I just make this observation I saw that an African, the African group of negotiators at COP26 has uh, made a, uh, a, a, a claim, which I think uh, looks perfectly uh, reasonable, uh, uh, where they've noted that $100 billion ultimately is a drop in the ocean, uh, and they're seeking a mega financing deal, which would uh, uh, give something in the order of $520 billion pounds to developing nations every year from 2025 to help them adapt to climate change. And they make the valid point that a number of African nations, and of course this applies to uh, many nations more generally, are already feeling the impacts of climate change, knocking multiple points off GDP, uh, and the compensation for that loss needs to come from somewhere, and finance is where we need to turn to. So, with that brief um, introduction in terms of what's been happening 
at COP26, let me turn to our tremendous panel. So we've got four speakers this evening. We've got um, Gareth Bryant, who's a senior lecturer in the Department of Political Economy, uh, and he's an economist in residence with the Sydney Policy Lab. Um, Gareth's research ranges widely, uh, but uh, focuses in particular on how public policy and public finance can create more sustainable, equal and democratic um, economies. We also have Tanya Feidler with us. Tanya uh, is a lecturer in accounting at the University of Sydney Business School. Tanya's work uh, looks at uh, several issues, including carbon accounting, strategy, valuation and market uh, making. And Catherine Owens is a senior lecturer. Uh, her research focuses on how law and governance can enable innovation and ecologically sustainable transformation, particularly in the context of climate and water governance. And she's uh, published a few years ago, really fabulous uh, book, which I'd commend to you on environmental water markets and regulation. So there are panelists. Did I say four panellists? We've only got three panellists, but they're tremendous panellists. Um, and so I'm going to kick off our discussion uh, now by going first to Gareth, if you don't mind, Gareth. And let's start with, with some basics. How do you understand uh, climate finance? What, what is climate finance? And why is it becoming um, so central in, in narratives around addressing climate change. Thanks, Tim, and hi, everyone. Great to be here tonight. Uh, at a really basic level, climate finance is usually defined in terms of flows of money that have some kind of climate goal. So the UNFCCC, which is the, the umbrella body under which COPs like the one taking place in Glasgow at the moment are hosted, they have a definition of climate finance, which is basically finance that aims to mitigate or adapt to climate change in some way. So this definition of climate finance is what the kind of official talks around climate finance at Glasgow are oriented around. Um, and so they're focused on some of the things that you mentioned in your introduction. So things like climate finance transfers from wealthy countries to poorer countries, um, so that's the $100 billion plus debate, as well as things like international carbon markets where emissions reductions can be bought and sold between countries. But I think we can also think a bit more broadly about the landscape of climate finance. So I think we can think about climate finance not only in terms of niche kinds of finance that have a particular climate label, but also the other way around, which is how climate change is actually reshaping in quite interesting and fundamental ways how financial markets are operating. So this, I think, is most visible when you look at some of the various ways that banks and investors are now recasting themselves as managers of climate risk through things like sustainable investment funds, green bond markets, um, ESG or environmental, social and governance risk integration. Um, it can also be seen in the way that governments through financial regulators as well as central banks are starting to take up climate concerns. So there is a really broad landscape of climate finance now. Just to quickly answer the second part of the question, which is why climate finance is important and why we are here tonight discussing this topic. I think there's three really big important reasons. 
Um, the first kind of obvious one, but doesn't always get stated, is that finance is actually deeply implicated in the creation of climate change because over many years, climate uh, finance has um, invested in as well as lent money to fossil fuel infrastructure that's generated really needs to change. The second is that the new kinds of economic responses we need to transform towards a zero carbon economy, they also need to be financed. So we need money to come from something they need to be paid for in some way. And crucially and interestingly, I think how they are financed really matters because how they are financed shapes what kind of climate economy we're going to end up building. So there's all different kinds of climate finance. Some of it's very market oriented. Some of it has a much bigger role for government as it has a much bigger role for, for communities. And, and those differences in different kinds of climate finance really matter in terms of what kind of economy we're going to build. And the third and final reason I'll highlight here is that climate finance is also a really important field of politics and political contestation. What we're seeing is that climate movements are increasingly uh, seeking to influence climate policy by making demands on financial institutions in terms of where they should put their money and where they should take their money out of. And the divestment movement is a really good example of this politics, which is really increasingly oriented around climate risk and making demands through making arguments about risky investments and what needs to happen in terms of flows of finance. Thank you, Gareth. Um, so in answering the question, you highlighted the, the, the different kinds of climate finance out there, uh, including the, the, the division between uh, public finance and private uh, finance and just staying on, on that theme, uh, could I ask uh, at, at now at this stage, um, Kate and Gareth, if you don't mind, to to bring us up to speed on the main public and private climate finance initiatives uh, that have been addressed at COP uh, twenty six and and how they compare. So perhaps Kate, if you wouldn't mind uh, taking us through you know, where we stand on the, the public finance side of things. Sure. Um, so when I talk about public climate finance, I'm really talking about finance you know, dispersed by governments either bilaterally or through multilateral um, institutions. So, for example, like the Global Climate Fund, the Green Climate Fund and so on. And there has been a lot to keep tabs on at this COP. Um, there have been negotiations taking place across um, decision-making bodies for the UNFCCC, um, the Paris Agreement and the Kyoto Protocol. Um, but certainly that headline focus, as Tim mentioned, is, is that pledge by developed countries to, to mobilise $100 billion per year by 2020 for developing nations. Um, this was a deal that was made back in Copenhagen in 2009, confirmed at Cancun, and then it really underpinned that whole um, bargain in Paris in 2015. So this $100 billion figure has been emblematic, you know, for over a decade now in these negotiations and certainly provided that base of trust between developed and developing countries. Um, the, the trouble with the Copenhagen deal, though, was that it didn't specify what kinds of funding would actually count as climate funding, and it left a lot of latitude to developed countries to actually 
you know, decide what they were going to report on as climate finance. And this has led to a lot, you know, a lot, a lot of issues in terms of accountability um, of finance and also quite a wide divergence in the estimates of how much we're actually raising. Um, so there have been some sort of quite, quite different reports um, on the amount of funding mobilised. But in any case, as Tim mentioned, um, on the eve of COP26, you know, all of the donor countries admitted that, you know, they're not going to meet this target and they've pushed out the deadline to 2023 or maybe 2022, if we're lucky. And that slippage gave rise to some tensions at the COP. Um, you know, most developed countries haven't mobilised their fair share of climate finance anyway, but at the same time, they're sort of pushing the developing world to intensify their climate commitments and their climate actions. Um, that said, though, there were quite a number of, of significant announcements going into the COP in terms of, of public funding. So, um, for example, the US pledged to double its public financing commitments. So um, by 2024, it's going to be um, it's going to be providing over uh, 11 billion per year. Um, Japan's going to contribute an additional 10 billion in climate finance over the next five years. And, and all of these announcements are really, really critical in, in the context of the Paris Agreement, because a lot of the um, developing country NDCs have conditional aspects to them. Um, and so, so, for example, um, India um, has committed to increase its share of non-fossil based energy resources to 40% of its energy supply by 2030, but that's conditional on international support. And that's where these, these national pledges um, come in. So that was the first issue. Um, I think that the second priority issue has really been that question of what's going to follow the $100 billion pledge. And what negotiators have been trying to do at the COP is um, establish or agree on a process to actually um, nominate a, a new collective quantified goal for clim climate finance post 2025. Um, so the actual goal itself isn't going to be agreed at the COP. Um, the idea is to really they work from this floor of 100 billion per year um, towards a new goal that's going to be agreed by 2024. I think developing countries would certainly like to see that figure nominated earlier, but um, the convergence seems to be that 2024 deadline and negotiators are going to have a range of challenges here. Um, so one watch point is, you know, whether that sum is going to reflect the needs of developing countries or whether it's going to lean more towards, you know, political realities. Um, so I've seen a range of figures bouncing around. Um, Tim, Tim mentioned one before. Um, I think countries like India have suggested that, you know, an, a needs-based figure would be something in the order of um, a trillion dollars, you know, on that measure. Um, and that would seem to be quite challenging given it's been a stretch for us to, to mobilise the $100 billion dollars in the first place. Um, another key point of contention, and I, I will um, round this up in a moment, but another key point of contention is the contributor base. So are we gonna stick with what was agreed at the UNFCCC and limit contributions to the richer nations? Or are we gonna bring in um, high income nations like Singapore or middle income nations like China and bring them into the pool? Um, so developed countries are certainly pushing to expand that particular 
contributor base. And parties are going to have to work through how the goal is going to be expressed. So are we going to have you know, a certain portion of private funding versus public funding, mitigation versus adaptation, um, how, a how a country is going to report on additionality, how are they going to report on, on progress and so on. So all of these issues uh, uh, go to transparency and trust and it's all critically important um, going forward, given all of the accountability issues that we've had with our public um, climate finance commitments. Um, and then over the, the next 48 hours or so, we'll see a range of further commitments on adaptation, um, on access to finance and on transparency and how we report on, on our finance um, commitments. Um, so I'll leave it there. Great. Thanks so much, Kate. I'm just going to ask you a very quick follow-up, if you don't mind, because it's at the forefront of, of my mind. Um, so it seems to me a lot of the public finance has been around mitigation, so help, helping developing countries you know, move to a cleaner economy and leapfrog fossil uh, fuels, etc., and also on the adaptation side. But there seems to be very little in terms of loss or damage, in terms of compensation. And there was something about Scotland having made the first commitment to actually paying, and I think it's a relatively small amount, basically compensation. It's, it's accepting uh, the responsibility of wealthy uh, nations for having caused climate damage. And do you, do you see public finance when it comes to loss and damage? Is, is that going to be you know, a, a big issue going forward? It certainly is a big issue. I, I don't know how far we're going to get at COP26. I mean, it certainly, you know, at Paris, um, negotiators agreed to address this issue and there was a provision in the Paris Agreement, but um, there's been no agreement for in terms of who should pay for loss and damage. You know, what happens when... These, these vulnerable countries sort of can't adapt to the intensity of these impacts, you know, and we have to go beyond adaptation, where we have to completely rebuild or, or move. Um, so certainly developing countries have been pushing for um, loss and damage to be recognised as a separate head of public finance um, at the COP, you know, a separate head on the balance sheet um, that's in addition to this baseline figure of $100 billion, but, um, but, but developing, developed nations have certainly resisted any, mm. any notion that, that this is a negotiation item, this idea of compensation. So um, I don't, I, you know, I, I, I don't think a lot of progress is going to be made on this issue at the COP, but I hope I'm proved wrong. I hope so too. So, and now turning from from public finance, um, Gareth, can I come back to you um, in relation to private finance? What have been the the main developments you've seen out of COP twenty six when it comes to private climate finance? One of, one of the first things to note is that the line between public and private climate finance is becoming quite blurry, um, and that's because a lot of the numbers behind some of the public finance pledges, some of those ones that, that Kate was talking about, they can be inflated by promises that a certain contribution of public money will then unlock a certain amount of private investment um, and that would be leveraged in that way. And even, even Scott Morrison's um, fund, tech fund that was announced yesterday, I think, is a good example of that where it's a, it's a billion-dollar fund but only half of that is, is public money. Um, but as you say, there are a whole range at the COP itself, a whole range of, of initiatives that have been led by private financial actors that 
uh, in some ways outside of but sit alongside the, the official cop business. And a lot of them are, are coming under the thing that, that you mentioned, Tim, in your introduction, the, the Glasgow Alliance for, for Net Zero, which, as you said, is led by former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney, who's becoming a really important figure in international climate finance space, together with a few others, including former New York mayor and head of Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg. So the headline announcement from that Glasgow Alliance was, as was flagged, that, that banks, investors and insurers that are part of that alliance now control $130 trillion US trillion worth of assets that are aligned to net zero commitments. So there was a few criticisms leveled at, at this 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 uh, announcement, but I do think it is important to to recognise that these kinds of announcements don't come out of nowhere. They they do, I think, absolutely reflect the successful pressure that's been put on the finance sector by climate campaigners, climate advocates. And they do signal what is a genuine shift that's taking place in global capital markets towards investing in things like renewable energy. But the way that the, the announcement was done, I think, is also quite revealing of the private finance sector's preferred response to climate change, which is primarily based around climate disclosure, which is all about enabling markets to have the right information so that markets can take voluntary action without the need for too much government regulation. Some of the reasons that that um, $130 trillion figure was, was criticised was firstly because it probably does double and triple or more count certain assets, and that's because the way these uh, institutions work is that different financial institutions tend to manage each other's financial assets. Um, but there's a more important critique that has come out, which is that the figure counts up all of the assets that are under management by these banks, investors and insurers that make up the coalition. But at the moment, many of those assets are actually invested in fossil fuels, which raises the important question of how can a coal asset, for example, be really aligned to, to net zero. And one of the answers to that question, I think, is that when private financial actors talk about being aligned to net zero, that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't invest in fossil fuels at all. What they mean there is that they will be now integrating climate risk assessments into their investment decisions. Um, and that's something I know Tanya has actually done a lot of research about, and I'm sure she'll want to talk much more about it. Well, that's a very nice segue um, to, to Tanya now. Um, so, yeah, turning to, to you, Tanya, you know, given your, your work particularly on, on risk, um, why do you think that debates around climate finance in the private sector have been so heavily focused on climate risk, this notion of risk? And, you know, what are the, the, the promises and the pitfalls in terms of thinking about uh, climate change and climate finance in terms of risk. Thanks, Tim. Um, and thanks, Gareth, as well, for the, for the segue there. Um, so why, why the focus on risk? Well, the focus on risk arises from two uh, sources. One is from the investor perspective in the sense that climate change is, in fact, a risk for the investor community. Um, 
and it, it is a risk in the sense that uh, they have assets under management that may be exposed to transition risks, for example, um, in the sense that, you know, a, a coal miner uh, might have assets that will become stranded um, due to a lack of demand. Um, they also hold assets that are exposed to the physical risks of climate change uh, in the sense that um, there may be infrastructure that becomes damaged because of the physical effects such as a cyclone and so on. Um, and then there's also the insurers um, who have been witnessing for over, over the last few decades how these risks are accelerating and the effects of these on the financial system. There are also... Uh, I should add to this as well, of course, the uh, financial regulators and central banks globally who uh, who have begun to understand in a very, very significant way uh, the potential for climate change to uh, affect the stability of the global financial system. And in this regard, there was in uh, 2015, 2015 the formation um, from the G20's Financial Stability Board of a group called the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And this group published a set of recommendations in 2017, uh, basically uh, providing a framework from which uh, publicly listed companies, finance sector organisations, um, asset owners uh, and others uh, could publish publicly disclose uh, their risks and opportunities uh, with respect to climate change. And, and in these thinking through those, I mentioned before, those transition and the physical risks. So transition risks and opportunities as well as physical risks and opportunities. Um, so that particular piece of work has been really, really significant, uh, as uh, Gareth has mentioned, partly because of the people that have been driving it, um, the likes of Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg. Um, it's also been really significant because it's turned the conversation from sustainability to finance. And this has been really important because it's, whereas climate change is always going to be about sustainability, sustainability is often too far into the future for organizations for profit making enterprises to take it seriously to or to or to understand the implications for them whereas framing climate change uh, from a financial risk perspective means that it begins to become uh, an agenda item for the CFO or for the CRO for the chief risk officer uh, so that really changes the tenor of the conversation that occurs within profit making institutions you know, are there any any pitfalls really in 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 thinking through climate finance issues through the prism of risk? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, obviously there are, <laughs> and and that uh, again sort of feeds into what both Kate and Gareth were alluding to, um, and that is that the focus then becomes on the technocratic implementation of what we do around climate risk. Uh, or financial risk specifically. Uh, so I spend a lot of my time studying TCFD and TCFD implementation and also the ways in which companies are building models uh, in order to evaluate their potential exposure to these risks, um, as well as 
how companies consider to actually undertake those disclosures. So where should those disclosures be made? In what format should those disclosures be made? Which metrics and targets should be used? So the emphasis and the focus of energy and of effort becomes those questions. And it the, the really super important questions around how to account for and how to, well, how to, first of all, how to provide for losses and damages in the developing world, how to provide and enable and facilitate adaptation as well as uh, development so that they also have energy security in the way that we do but can leapfrog um, fossil-fueled um, energy production. Those sorts of questions become lost in, in this focus on, on risk. Oh, tremendous. Thank you, Tanya. And, and I think that does really nicely lead into um, a third uh, kind of theme that I wanted to, to dwell on this evening, uh, which is um, around what purpose climate finance is, is serving. So I, I guess you've emphasised that uh, the focus on risk can be highly um, te technocratic. It can... Uh, it can fail to see the kind of bigger picture. And when it comes to the bigger picture, surely the, the biggest picture of all is what good climate finance can do. Can it actually promote uh, climate uh, justice? You know, how are we actually going to uh, ensure that climate finance um, produces the, the world that we want to live in, a, a, a fair and, and just world um, that protects nature and humanity. Um, and so I'd, I'd love all three speakers, if you wouldn't mind, to, to offer perhaps in just you know, a minute or two, just noting the time, how can we transform the climate finance system that we've got to promote climate justice? Um, and I'll start with Gareth and then go to Kate and then Tanya. Gareth. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, I think I can make two quick points there here, hopefully. Um, one, in terms of how we can get towards what might be called, I guess, climate justice finance. Um, I think the first thing is that truly transforming this space will take more than voluntary private sector initiatives, which tend to be kind of overly focused on how climate change represents a risk to finance, but not how finance represents a risk to climate change. Um, so I think what's going to be important is that financial regulators are going to have to start thinking about how they can place strict limits on fossil fuel investing and lending. Central banks like the Reserve Bank of Australia need to think about how they can adopt climate mandates in their own monetary policy operations. And we need to think about what kind of new fiscal institutions are going to be necessary to actually make more public climate finance investments. Um, and the second thing I'd just like to underscore the, the point made about the need to pay more attention to the, the loss and damage question. So I think this is important because it's not only a quantitative question about how can we bridge the financing gaps and get towards the $100 billion target or the $500 billion target and, and more. Um, what also matters, I think, here is that the qualitative structure of what's going on um, and given the, the massive historical climate debts of wealthy countries and the links between those climate debts and ongoing 
climate harm in poorer community in poorer countries we need to i think open up a conversation about compensation for loss and damage that is putting climate reparations on the agenda rather than thinking in terms of climate finance as a form of charity yeah great observations thanks uh, gareth kate your reflections on this theme sure i mean i i think that finance can promote climate justice. Um, there are a few dimensions, I suppose, to, to climate justice. Um, certainly, it, it's this idea of, of recognising that, you know, an impact like rising sea levels or extreme weather events, um, you know, it isn't distributed equally across space, across time. Um, we all know that. And so, and these impacts also affect vulnerable populations more severely. So certainly climate finance needs to be um, designed to provide that redistributive response. But um, another dimension of climate finance that, I, that I've been looking at is certainly that um, procedural aspect of climate justice. Um, so, so all countries and communities really need to be recognised and involved and empowered to participate in decision making on these financial flows um, and also empowered to adapt and thrive and retain their identities, you know, in, the, in this mix um, of initiatives. And there are quite a few ways that public climate finance can contribute to these processes and these outcomes. Um, so, so Gareth's already touched on the quality of um, climate financing and certainly from a justice perspective, you know, we have to think about how much ground funding is needed for vulnerable um, countries, certainly when we're thinking about adaptation to these extreme weather events. Um, and, and, you know, public finance is needed to really come in and support these projects that aren't necessarily um, profitable. Um, and with, at the moment, we're seeing a lot of these climate finance flows going to these middle income countries for um, mitigation projects that are arguably, you know, sustainable without or viable without the, these funds. So, um, you know, there, there has to be, um, a, you know, a lot more happening than the, these business as usual practices. And, um, you know, although they're quite easy to coordinate and um, fund from a donor perspective, you know, if we're really going to move the needle on these things, um, we need to make sure that finance actually reaches um, these most vulnerable communities and countries. So the quality of climate finance is important. Um, access to finance is equally as important. And this has been a problem for a long time now. So quickly, um, you know, if you're a of the one or of the one or two government officials in a government department in a small island island developing state, for example, you have to decide, you know, which of the spaghetti bowl of funding channels you're going to go to to obtain your finance, and and these are all largely um, governed by developed nations, and each of these channels has its own accreditation and its own approval processes, and these are onerous, they're intensive very time consuming and um, they're using up all of these really precious human resources um, in these countries. So we really need, you know, if we're serious about promoting justice, we, we really have to work on these barriers and these transaction costs. And this is one of the key issues that's being tackled um, at the COP. Um, and a, a final point is that, well, you know, even if these countries 
access the, the, the finance, um, they need to be able to absorb and spend the money. So some real attention has to be paid to building the capacities of developing countries, you know, in terms of um, planning processes, um, geospatial assessments, uh, project origination, all of their procurement processes um, to really, you know, give investors confidence to come, you know, to come in and invest in these countries. Um, and it also ensures that, you know, the, the outcomes reflect local realities um, and reflect what, what these countries actually need. Um, we need to train um, local people so that they can operate and maintain the infrastructure once it's there and actually reap the benefits of things like um, increased access to electricity. Um, so, so if finance is going to actually promote climate justice, it has to grapple with all of these, these processes to ensure that we do get these sustainable outcomes. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. And, and Tanya, how do you see the justice dimension playing out in the climate finance space? Thank you. I'll, I'll try to be quick. So um, I'd, I'd actually like to reference a co-author of mine who's uh, recently uh, written an essay um, and, and in that essay, she um, discusses the emphasis that's being placed on capital flows, especially, uh, sorry, and this is Kate McKenzie I'm talking about, on capital flows, particularly from the private sector, means that uh, structural features of the global financial system are largely being unaddressed. And in that, she references in particular um, debt servicing that is required on an ongoing basis from a lot of these um, nations. And, and she mentions, for example, um, in Latin America that in, um, that in some countries debt servicing ha is up to 27% um, as a proportion of export revenue or that Ghana and Kenya, for example, uh, spend more on debt than on healthcare. Uh, so these things really can't go... They, they can't remain unaddressed, these disparities. So you, you have these countries who are not only uh, being held to these debts, but they are also the countries that are most vulnerable to the physical effects of climate change, who are going to suffer the greatest financial losses um, and the, the greatest inability to make repayments on their debt. So, so there are real structural issues there that also need to be considered alongside um, the, the financing aspect. I'll leave it there. Thank you. And that's a great place, I think, to finish highlighting uh, structural, existing structural uh, injustice uh, that, that needs to be remedied, remedied. It's not just the climate issue. There's all kinds of other uh, financial problems uh, between rich and poor that we need to resolve. And maybe, maybe in addressing climate change, um, it provides a vehicle for revisiting some of, some of those problems and getting a better outcome. Okay, so we've got um, a few minutes for questions. Uh, Mally Eden asks or poses a question in relation to uh, how we address the problem of climate displacement. So climate change is is making people move. I mean, you know, tens of thousands of people have already started moving and there'll be millions moving uh, as places warm up and become uninhabitable uh, or get hit by uh, extreme weather events. Um, what role do we think uh, finance might play in dealing with the displacement problem? That's probably mostly a public finance um, issue. So perhaps I'll go to you, Kate. I have to admit that I haven't spent 
you know, a lot of time looking at this particular issue, but it, it is something that that should be encompassed by, um, you know, these, these these financial measures for loss and damage for compensation. You know, it is this concept that we're going beyond adaptation. You know, people have to move um, and resettle. So, um, you know, certainly that is something that, that could come within um, these specific discrete provisions of the Paris Agreement. Um, there could be funding windows established um, to deal with these particular issues. But, um, but beyond that, um, you know, I might throw to the other panellists. Um, look, I, I have to say it's also not an area that I've uh, had um, a great deal of experience in other than um, having observed on a number of occasions or uh, been in the audience on a number of occasions where people from the military in, in Australia were discussing climate refugees. So I'm, I'm aware that it's very much uh, front of mind uh, for, for, for the military here in Australia. And I've no doubt uh, from a security perspective that that is the case in other countries also. Yes, it will be interesting to see how it plays out because I can imagine a number of rich countries would prefer not to have to deal with people at their borders. So they might want to pay people to stay where they are, even if it's uh, pretty intolerable and awful conditions. It might be a dark side of some climate finance uh, we see. Um, perhaps even, you know, Australia's approach to refugees already could be seen uh, in that light with mandatory offshore detention and so on. Um, so we've got some great questions in the Q&A box, uh, and let me just pick through them. First of all, Chi Nguyen has asked a question about the um, mandating of investment uh, in financial, by financial firms. Can it represent an overreach for governments? Do governments mandate investing in certain harmful industries like tobacco and gambling? I'm not sure I fully grasp the the the, the essence of the question, but I guess it goes to the extent to which governments regulate uh, private finance in certain uh, industries and the relevance of that regulation when it comes to fossil fuels or climate issues more generally. Might go to you, Gareth, on, on this. Yeah, sure. No worries. It's a, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, my first response is that governments do place some limits on those in, on investment in those industries already um, but there but there is also ways of governments regulating you know what banks are doing and how where financial markets are putting their money that that don't quite go towards mandating but do shift uh, the sorts of investments that they're going to make so for example, um, what financial regulators do is that they put in place capital requirements on banks, which say that in order to lend, um, you know, for every dollar you want to lend, you need to have uh, 10 cents in, in reserves as a capital reserve. And you could actually shift those capital requirements as part of the financial regulation, which would basically promote more uh, green investments, so reducing capital requirements for, for green investments or would penalise fossil fuel investments or lending by requiring a higher capital requirement for those sort of activities. So there are things to do that I think regulators could shift towards putting actual limits in place, but short of that, there's also plenty of other options that can really shift 
the way capital markets operate, where money is being lent, where money is being invested, which would ultimately penalise fossil fuels with higher levels of interest rates, higher costs of capital, and the, the inverse for, for green investments, uh, allowing them to, to access capital on more favourable terms. Thank you for that, Gareth. Um, the next question, which I'll, I'll pull out, uh, is a question from Mark Frost. Uh, and perhaps I, I might, might put this one to you, Tanya, it seems most aligned with, with your kind of interests. So Mark is asking whether or not we can foresee a time when climate finance effectively becomes mainstreamed. So it ceases being a separate classification and just moves into standard practice in all types of financing across the consumer and commercial and international spectrums? Well, personally, I think that's already happening. Um, There's clear evidence of of this occurring, and certainly that's where the financial regulators are positioning uh, climate risk. Um, There have already been a number of announcements made by ASIC that that climate risk should be considered as as any other type of risk uh, within, you know, the disclosures that are, that are made, particularly within the Operating and Financial Review, um, and ASIC are paying attention to, to climate risk in that regard. Uh, the Australian Accounting Standards Board has made similar um, uh, announcements and, and pub- published as well, uh, not so much in consideration of, well, in, in the sense that they say that climate risk is like any other risk, so um it, it will be material if if climate risk is a material uh, subject for for you as as an organisation. So it shouldn't be separated out as something separate. It it is a risk as any other. Thanks, Tanya, for that answer. Um, I think we've probably only got time for for one final question, or well, we'll see how we go. But probably only only one, and uh, I'll direct this one to uh, to the other lawyer on the group. Uh, Kate Owen. So we've got a question from Zoe Nay asking what role there might be when it comes to transnational or international climate litigation in relation to climate finance. Um, You know, where might we see litigants turning to courts, both national and international, and what impact that might might have on, on finance, perhaps targeting our finance that's flowing into to fossil fuels and co- contributing to the problem rather than the, the solution? That's a big question, Zoe, but it's a good one. It's a, it's a very good one. Um, I, I can't address that question in relation to loss and loss and damage specifically, but um, the, the courts are certainly becoming more and more willing to, you know, step in and, and fill the gaps left by both governments and, and corporates in applying the law. So certainly in the Shell decision, um, you know, that um, we saw um, uh, the Shell the Shell Group basically, or the, the head of the Shell Group, um, the, the sort of head corporation of the Shell Group, um, held to account for its its corporate policy. It actually had um, a net zero policy, sort of, you know. Uh, in print, publicly available, um, but it was found to be um, 
you know, not a particularly viable one. And, and certainly the court was prepared to impose, uh, you know, a duty based on the provisions of uh, a specific civil code that applied in the Netherlands um, to, to, to require um, the Shell Group to reduce its, its emissions across its whole supply chain. Um, so, so, you know, there are certainly, you know, if the, if the, if the right regulatory environment exists, um, the courts will use it to, to imply certain duties and obligations to reduce emissions. So we're seeing them do that for corporates. Um, in Australia, we've, we've just seen um, the, the recent Sharma decision where, where the courts have been, in, uh, you know, prepared to actually read in a, a private private law duty, um, a duty of care, um, you know, requiring, um, you know, the minister to, to, you know, or to impose that duty of care on the minister to, when exercising a statutory function under an environmental law statute. Um, so this was a really bold decision. Um, we're not sure how it's going to go on appeal, um, but but it you know it it what the the effect of that decision would mean that um, you know government decision making would not only have to take into account the considerations of various environmental uh, statutes, but but there was, would also be this sort of private law duty um, to consider future generations and Australian children um, running alongside it. So the the implications of some of these cases aren't yet clear. Um, you know, we think they may be providing sort of various prototypes that, that uh, future litigants can use and and refine. Um, and certainly, you know, if the Sharma decision's upheld on appeal, then it will it will change the entire uh, litigation landscape. So I think I think that's that's certainly a watch point for us, um, that decision. Um, so I think that now brings us really to time, unfortunately, but it's been a really fascinating, stimulating, interesting uh, discussion. And uh, it just falls to me to, to thank our panellists for their contributions tonight and putting in all the hard work in preparing in advance uh, for this session. It's been really tremendous. So yeah, thank you to all three of you. Um, and now I, I hand back to Professor Susan Park, who's got to close the webinar this evening and um yeah thank you susan for for having me as chair thank you very much tim for chairing and thank you to all of the speakers for giving us an insight into how climate uh can be shaped by finance and how we can shape finance to address climate issues um so thank you to everybody who joined us this evening and who uh, joined in the discussion through the chat function. Uh, but this concludes our, um, our SEI extraction series. And of course, you can stay up to date with these, these types of events and other events through the Sydney Environment Institute monthly newsletter, which you can sign up to, or you can follow us all on Twitter or Facebook. So thank you very much to everybody and have a good evening.